sin against you. And it taught us to be used to spark revival in our homes, yes, Lord God. God. And we would put into practice, Lord God, the very things we learned this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, we have a lot of ground to cover tonight. I'm Amen. excited about it. Um, I will not be with you next week because I'm in Israel. Amen. And um, when I get back, uh, we have a sending service for Buddy and Kim. Which is going to be extraordinary. And uh, tonight we cover City of, of Refuge. In our next meeting, uh, we'll cover the misunderstood altar in chapter 22. And then we will close out our Joshua study with Joshua's uh, valedictory speech. So we're going to have a great time. Uh, The book's not over. Don't think it's over tonight. I think we'll show you that. And uh, uh, Jennifer's going to labor through a few awkward city names that we're all guaranteed to mispronounce. Do we have a Hebrew scholar in the house tonight? Good, then we're just going to assume that we all have mispronounced them and do our very best and have fun with it, right? I mean, if you can read about she-member in Genesis 14 or a a woman named Bigtha in the book of Esther, uh, I think we can... We can handle these city names just fine, right? Amen. Uh, Well, Jen, we're going to start in Joshua 20 and read all the way through 21. Amen. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused, because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice of forethought. He is to stay in that city until he stood trial before the assembly and until death of the high priest who is serving at that time. <coughs> then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Karath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. On the east side of the Jordan of Jericho, they designated Bazir, in the desert, on the plateau in the tribe of Reuben, Ramah, and Gilead in the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan in the tribe of Manasseh. Any of these Israelites or any alien living among them who killed someone accidentally could flee into these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. <coughs> now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest. Joshua, son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel, and Silo, and Canaan, and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. The first lot came out for the Kohathites, clan by clan. The Levites, who were descendants of Aaron, the priests, were allotted allotted 13 towns from the tribe of Judah, Simeon and Benjamin. 
The rest of the Kohathite descendants were allotted ten towns from the clans of the tribes of Ephraim, Dan, and half of Manasseh. The descendants of Gershon were allotted thirteen towns from the clans of the tribes of Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and half-tribe of Manasseh and Bashan. The descendants of Moriah, clan by clan, received twelve towns from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. So the Israelites allotted the Levites, these towns, and their pasture lands, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. From the tribe of Judah and Simeon, they allotted the following towns by name. These towns were assigned to the descendants of Aaron, who were from the Kohathite clans of the Levites, because the first lot fell to them. They gave them Karath Arba, that is Hebron, with its surrounding pasture lands in the hill country of Judah. Arba was the father of Anak. With the fields and villages around the city, they had been given to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and his possession. So the descendants of Aaron, the priests they gave Hebron, a city of refuge for one accused of murder. Libna, Jatir, Eshtermoa, Holon, Debir, Ain, Jutta, and Beth Shemesh, together with their pasture lands, nine towns from these two tribes. And from the tribe of Benjamin, they gave them Gibeon, Geba, Anoth, Oman, together with their pasture lands, four towns. All the towns of the priests and the descendants of Aaron were 13 together with their pasture lands. The rest of the Kohathite clans of the Levites were allotted towns from the tribe of Ephraim. In the hill country of Ephraim, they were, were given Shechem, the city of refuge for the one accused of murder, and Gezir, Kizba, Zain, and Beth Haram, together with their pasture lands, four towns. Also from the tribe of Dan, they received Elteca. Gibeathon, Algelon, Gathramon, together with their pasture lands, four towns. From the half tribe of Manasseh, they received Tanach and Gathramon, together with their pasture lands, two towns. All these ten towns and their pasture lands were given for the rest of the Kohathite clans. The Levite clan of the Gershonites were given from the half tribe of Manasseh, Golan, and Bashan, a city of refuge for one accused of murder. And Beth Sharoth, together with their pasture lands, two towns. From the tribe of Issachar, Kishion, Dabera, <coughs> and Enganon, together with their pasture lands, four towns from the tribe of Asher, Mishal, Abdon, Pelikath, and Rehob, together with their pastures, four towns from the tribe of Naphtali. Kadesh and Galilee. Kadesh and Galilee, a city of refuge for one accused of murder. Hamath, Dor, and Kartan, together with their pastures, lands, three towns. All the towns of Gershonites' clans were 13 together with their pasture lands. The Merarite clans, the rest of the Levites, were given from the tribe of Zebulun. Jokneum, Karthoth, Dima, Nahala, together with their pasture lands, four towns from the tribe of Reuben. Bazir, Jahaz, Kedemoth, and Mephpath, together with their pasture lands, four towns from the tribe of Gad. <coughs> Ramoth and Gilead, the city of refuge for one accused of murder. Mahamim, Yeshbon, and Jazir, together with their pasture land, four towns in all. All the towns allotted to the Merarite clan, who were the rest of the Levites, were twelve. The town of the Levites and the territory held by the Israel's Lights were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. 
Each of these towns had pasture land surrounding it. This was true of all of these towns. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all of their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Amen. Everyone fulfilled. Amen. Come on. Amen. I love you, honey. When you turn Kiriath into a carafe, it's special. And Beezer becomes a brazier, but it's okay. They're all special in their own unique ways, right? Uh, we're going to do something unusual. We're going to take the 21st chapter and then the 20th. And there's a reason for that. The 20th comes before the 21st because in the Levitical cities, they designate cities of refuge. And if you didn't know what a city of refuge was, it wouldn't make sense when they broke it out in 21. But the larger category is Levitical cities. So I want to start with the assignment of the Levitical cities. And then we'll move down to specific cities uh, that are cities of refuge. Does that make sense? Yes. If you think of it as a funnel, the widest part of the funnel here are Levitical cities, and the narrowest part are uh, cities of refuge. So, um, who wants to go first? JJ, take Joshua 21, read 1 through 3. We want to emphasize a few things out of it. And uh, Judah... Take Numbers 35, 1 through 3. And Justin, take Deuteronomy 12, 17 through 19. And uh, Buddy, take Deuteronomy 14, 27. Joshua 21, 1 through 3. Now the family heads of the Levites approach Eleazar the priest. Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh in Canaan, and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in, with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. One of the things that I love about this, and I'm not going to teach on it, I just want to mention it in passing. You notice Joshua is not acting monolithically. He, he is working in conjunction with Eleazar the priest. Yeah. He's working in conjunction with the Levites. And he's listening to the heads of the other families as well. Uh, we sometimes have this view of this one great man of God that everybody else submits to. No great man of God stands alone. Amen. He, he better stand in a team of others. I think the age of the super pastor is so long past that anybody who lived from the 70s and 80s forward... Which mega ministry didn't fall on its face in an embarrassing worldwide way? I mean, we need to get to the point where we quit paying clowns to entertain us. We, we have to get real about this. When you are completely unfamiliar with someone's life, when you will never be inside their home or they're inside your home, how can we say they're fit to pastor you? Yeah. This never existed in history before we reached an age of demagoguery where we want this um, king-like status with a distant leader that we can hold in high respect because we know nothing about them. There's something to be said for the man that works alongside you. 
uh, and that holds you accountable not just to God's word but to your own word. See, the TV preacher will never make you consider a vow that you made publicly because he wasn't there and you weren't there and he wouldn't know you if he ran into you uh, anywhere. But the local pastor who loves you and maybe the greatest thing he ever did for God was to give his life locally to 50 sheep. He can help you remember what you said in the presence of the saints. Uh, we're going to find out that most of the Bible revolves around very personal relationships, uh, communal relationships. Nobody isolated and nobody sufficiently hidden in the anonymity of a giant crowd. Uh, that is an important, there's a reason that this is the age of the megachurch in the United States. We've never wanted to be accountable, and this is the ultimate expression of that. If the guy bleaches his teeth, has a reasonably good-looking wife who doesn't get in trouble uh, on an airline or on national <coughs> TV, and he doesn't say anything that hurts anyone's feelings, that's the kind of pastor we want. But Jesus was nothing like that. He hurt everybody's feelings. He was controversial in every way. And he lived day in and day out in the presence of at least 12 men at all times. There, there was never this isolation of ivory tower. With that said, when we look at this first few verses, where did the towns that the Levites got come from? So when the tribes got their inheritance, out of their inheritance, they provided for the Levites. The idea that um, the pastor ought to be driving the nicest car in the congregation, living in the biggest house, wearing the nicest suit, and that's an example to the flock, is a satanic one. Yeah. You're going to find that out clearly in, in these passages <coughs> tonight. But let us just start with something. Everything that the Levites had came from the increase that God gave the regular Israelites. Amen. In other words, if the Israelites were not increasing, neither were the Levites. So you couldn't have a prosperity pimp taking advantage of a poor neighborhood. You couldn't do that. Because the Levite would never do any better than the Israelites were doing. Ten men giving a tenth provided the eleventh man to live in equality with the other ten. Not to raise himself above them. That's an interesting concept in today's age. How many people go to a church where a pastor flies his personal jet, but the average man in the church doesn't live that way? This was never how it was set up in the Bible. It will never be set up that way in the kingdom. This is a movie star-like invention. It's important that you understand, though, that the Levites were solely dependent upon the obedience of the people in this regard. Look at verse 3. So as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands, out of their own inheritance. See, it belonged to the tribes who said in advance, when we get this, we will do this. Now, how many people do you know that have promised, Lord, when you get me out of jail, then I will do thus and so. Yeah. And they got out of jail and didn't do it. Yeah. How many people do you know say, Lord, when I get that house, I'll use it for you. When I get that car, I'll use it for you. When... One of the problems with promising future obedience is you often don't have obedience now. This is one thing that the tribes did do right, though. As they got their inheritance, 
They made room for the Levites. And it's important because their future success would depend upon how well they were pastored. Because you remember from previous chapters, disobedience caused the previous inhabitants of the land to be vomited out. And God told them from the very beginning, if you do the things they did, I'll throw you out too. If faith obtained the land and obedience allowed you to uh, pay a sort of rent... Uh, then it was important to have Levites around that would teach you how to be obedient. That's a a lesson our nation is going to learn, I promise. How about Numbers 35, 1 through 3? On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to give the Levites towns to live in from the inheritance of the Israelites. We'll possess and give them pasture lands around the towns. Then they will have towns to live in and pasture lands for their cattle, flocks, and all their other livestock. So whatever a Levite had, where did it come from? It came from the Israelites' inheritance. And while the Levites may have been living in it, while the Levites may have been occupying it, and God said, you can use this, who did it originally belong to? Uh, The Israelites. Of course, that's not that much different than the Israelites lived, huh? God said, you're going to get this land. I'm going to give you this land. You're going to possess this land. Then he said, by the way, the land is mine. You're aliens and foreigners in it. You're sojourners in it. So we're all living in some level of dependency upon the Lord. The earth and everything in it is the Lord's. But the Levites would live in a greater sense of dependency because they not only were living in something that was the Lord's, it was someone else's too. Does that make sense to you? Watch what that continues to do. How about Deuteronomy 12? You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain and new wine and oil or the firstborn of your herds and flocks or whatever you have vowed to give or your free will offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. You, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants and the Levites from your, your towns. And you are to rejoice because the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in the land. Uh, live in? The land. Mm? In your land. In your land. Oh, wow. Notice something. One of the principal means that God encourages the people about their tithing was not just that it was given to God, but the Levites lived in whose towns? Your towns. See, even the town that is called the Levitical city doesn't belong to the Levite. He's only living there. It belongs to the tribe that granted it to him. By the way, this is where you get the idea of a parsonage. Just so you know, nobody does that anymore. But I mean, they do in their tax designations, but parsonages are not usually attached to the church anymore. In fact, sometimes the pastor's house is bigger than the church. No. I prefer just to put the church in the house, then there's no... Come on. When we stop feeding there, we, we got a warehouse. But he said, be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. Well, wasn't it the land of the Levites too? Yes, but it's not referred to that way. Because the Levites, above and beyond the regular Israelites, would live with this kind of detached nature that says, I'm one of you and I represent you, but I also represent God. Amen. And a priest never represents just one party. He puts his hands on both. Are you beginning to see some parallels here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Very interesting concept. This will get clearer and clearer. How about Deuteronomy 14, 27? And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Pause here. We're going to keep going through 28 and 9. But um, he says, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. And we just read a chapter that gave them an allotment. Hmm. So which is it? Yeah. Well, the Israelites live in a land that God gave them, but he says, it's not yours, it's mine. And then of what they lived in that was allotted to them, but they didn't own, <laughs> they gave something to the Levites mm. who lived in it but didn't own it. <laughs> wow. You could get the impression that God wants you to understand something. Yeah. Everything you have does not belong to you. Come on, yeah. Yeah. There is nothing that you have that yeah. did not originate with him and his word. It is first and foremost for his uses and not yours. And yet, if you just listen to us speak, our language is full of mine and ours and possessive nature. Everything about the Christian's life, like the Hebrew that went before us, is as a tenant and a steward of what God has given. And when you begin to evaluate your life like that, you don't feel good that you gave a certain amount, you look at what you held back for yourself and you start to judge yourself that way. You don't say, hey, here were some dimes that I threw to the poor. You start to look at what you've kept for yourself and you ask yourself the question, am I actually being a good steward of what God has given me? Yeah. Now, preachers do this and they harp on money. Money is the least of what I'm talking about. If you spend five hours a week really thinking about and loving Jesus, what did you do with all of the other hours? I mean, we have to consider this. Who would accept the relationship with a spouse that we met a couple times a week? I mean, who wants to live that way? This is supposed to cause us to look at everything that was given us and consider how we use it. How about verse 28 and 29, buddy? Yes, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is such an interesting passage. <clears throat> It implies that the only way for the work of your hands to be blessed is to care about somebody else who's living in your land. Now, listen to who the groupings were, all right? We have Levites. We kind of get that, right? Aliens. Those are immigrants. Fatherless and widows. You hear pastors all of the time talking about why you must give to a church. You don't hear pastors very often talking about aliens, orphans, and widows. In fact, you might never hear them talk about those things. But James echoes this, doesn't it? It's why we have a team in Kenya right now. Pure and faultless religion is this, to look after widows and orphans. You know, I've heard people go so far as to say somebody's under a curse because of what they did or didn't do with their money. That is actually not my position, but I've heard that. 
Have you ever heard anybody suggest that you're under a curse because you ignored a widow or an orphan? It's the exact same class of people. Apparently the pastor only cares if he gets his. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Yes, man. Look at the beautiful way in which God was setting up the uh, commonwealth of Israel, though. He wanted the people that had received an inheritance to care the most about those who were in some way deprived. In other words, he would watch you to see how you cared about those who were underneath your authority. Or in some way, increased uh, dependence. You can see from the passages that the tribes were to take portions of their own inheritance and make provision for the Levites. God increased the tribes, and the tribes gave to the Lord by making provision for his representatives. But it's not the Levites only. Who will read one for you? Uh, Kylie, read Proverbs 19:17, And Megan, you take Matthew 25, 34 through 40. You might hear a slightly different twist on this than you're used to. Proverbs 19.17 He who is kind to the poor wins to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. He who is kind to the poor does what? Lends to the Lord. Lends to the Lord. Why? Because they're his. And he cares for them. And when we do kind things for the poor, he says it's lending to him. That ought to remind you of the passage Megan's about to read. like this very often, you'll drive out here to Highway 6 and see the professional homeless uh, couple right there. You feel guilty, you stop, so you throw some money at them and keep going. Maybe you feel really guilty, so you give them a can of tuna fish and sit and waste a few hours of your life talking to them. And uh, that sounds cruel, I know, but I've spent more time with the homeless than anybody in the room. Uh, Homeless in many countries... uh, fit the biblical definition of poor. They really do. The homeless here are in an entirely different category. They get three meals a day. They eat. The only people that are homeless in Houston choose to be homeless. They want to be homeless and they're professionals at it. You may have missed something in this passage. He said, these brothers of mine, whatever you've done unto the least of these brothers of mine, you've done unto me. You have an obligation to something. And in Israel, when we're talking about Levites, when we're talking about widows, when we're talking about orphans, do do you know what they all have in common? They all have a greater level of dependency on the Lord than the average person, and they are your brother. Well, in the kingdom, let's go to Matthew 25. What were some of the people that he was discussing? The... uh, those that needed clothes, 
those that needed food, and those that were in prison. If you need clothes, food, or you're in prison or sick, and you are of the gospel, you're at a greater level of dependency on the Lord than the average person, then helping that person is just like lending to the Lord, which is what the proverb says. Amen. That does not mean that going to see uh, your grandfather in jail who was wicked and it's wise in jail, it's wicked in jail now, and uh, will continue to be wicked, that that is like lending to the Lord. That, that does not mean that at all. That's an easy thing to miss in that passage. We're supposed to look with greater responsibility upon those who have made themselves more dependable to be in the service of the Lord. That is, those that have forsaken security for the Lord deserve the attention of the body of Christ. Amen. That's, that's not preached in the prosperity gospel, is it? Okay. Next time somebody is uh, preaching a heart-wrenching message about money, look to see how dependent upon the Lord they are. Okay, Because those who are um, hurting for the kingdom are the ones that regularly give away their last dollar. Not the ones that are amassing your dollars in their accounts. Okay? And if the FBI can come in and do a sting and find cash under their bed, that ought to tell you everything that you need to know. When we read the words in Matthew 25, it's easy to mistake what he is saying for some kind of bizarre humanitarian work. But in reality, he's speaking about caring for those that represent him. First and foremost, that's got to be the nation of Israel. Then secondly, you might think of it as the body of Christ. And among the body of Christ, especially those whose work is priestly work. You know? Okay, can I hand out some passages? Rob, take 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Keep your hands up. Uh, <laughs> Nick, take 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Sam, take... Uh, Joshua 21, 41 through 42. That's good. <coughs> so we're waiting on 1 Peter 2, 9. 1 Peter 2. I'm sorry, 2, 4. 4 through 6. As you come to him, the living stone is rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. So you got it, Rob. Now, think about what this means. This means that when you come to Jesus, He is taking you and building you into a priesthood. Isn't that what it said? Do you feel a different responsibility towards dependency on the Lord than you expect of a pastor? Because every member of the body of Christ is supposed to be in the priesthood of the Lord. But when you look at Israel, don't you think they did the exact same thing? The tribe's like, hey, I gave my inheritance a portion of it. That was my my duty. No, everything you had as a Judite or as a Gadite or uh, uh, from the tribe of Issachar, you were just as dependent upon the Lord Theoretically, but the reality is they weren't, huh? Because the Lord left more in their hands than the Levites. 
Now, do you see what's happening here, though? We see a gradient of requirements, a gradient of loyalties, a gradient of obediences, and the Lord holds us all exactly to the same standard, regardless of what He's left in your hands. That's incredible. Because the person who works hard every day, and, uh, and they love the Lord, and they feel great because they got out a calculator and figured out what their tithe was, says they have done their job wrong. Wrong by a long shot. That's like saying the pastor's done his job when he preached a sermon on Sunday. It's the smallest part of what we do. Everything that you have belongs to the Lord. Everything that you are is His. All that you have, possess, um, gifts, talents, it's supposed to be being used for His service. And that doesn't change whether you're a Levite or from one of the other 11 tribes. Now roll that forward into the kingdom. Mm. Hey, brother, have you surrendered your life to the full-time call of Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life to the ecclesiastical call? Is there any other kind? If when you get born again, you're supposed to give him your entire life, then what does it mean to have full-time ministry? Mm. All we're doing is arguing about where your uh, food comes from. That's all we're doing. Mm. The truth is, is everybody in this room who says they love the Lord ought to be in full-time Christian ministry. How could you be in any other kind? All we're talking about is where your, your resources come from. And ultimately, what is that also the answer for every person in this room? Whatever resource you have came from dependency on the Lord. So I ask you then, can you rightly judge yourself by what you're giving, or do you have to judge yourself by what you're keeping? If it all belongs to the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay. There's no offering. I want your lives. I want your lives. I want whatever you see in your leaders for you to examine our faith and imitate our way of life. That's what I want. The same kind of zeal, the same kind of passion, the same kind of dependency on the Lord should be common among us, not the rare exception. Does that make sense? If you're going to have a nation of priests, that's the only way to get there. See what I'm aiming at? Yes. Okay, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So hold there. Is that true only for one-twelfth of the body of Christ? (laughs) Right? No, that's true for everybody in the body, right? And yet, have you subtly crept into some days are more uh, more holy than others? Some people are more responsible than others? Some locations more holy than others? Drink a beer in the parking lot, but dear God, don't walk into the sanctuary with it. Think through this for a minute. What we're saying when we compartmentalize, on Monday I can do this, but on Sunday I can't do this. Mm. What we do when we're compartmentalizing 
is we're saying some part of our life is ours, and we will give the Lord a part of our life on another day. That's good. So our religion becomes going to see a holy man in holy clothes on a holy day for an unholy fee, and it produces unholy people. Everything that we have is his. Everything. Where can you go like David and get away from his presence? If you go upstairs, are you closer to the heavens? If you come downstairs, are you further from him? There's nowhere that you can go and be away from his presence. So why do you believe that some days you're closer to him? Some hours you're closer to him? Or in some activities you're closer to him? We believe it because we've fallen into the same trap that the 12 tribes have. That tribe will serve God for us. It wasn't true in Israel, and it's not true now. The whole purpose of that tribe was to help you learn to serve God yourself. Do you know what the purpose of the fivefold ministry is? To prepare you for works of service. I do not believe that one man pastoring 3,000, 3,000 who cannot stand up and do what he does, not 100 can stand up and do what he does, not five are allowed from the congregation to stand up and do what he does. I'm past even calling that a church. That's a joke. That's not a church. A church has congregants that are being raised up to do what those leaders do, and they should do it better. They should progress in revelation through every generation. That is a church. Amen. What we're looking at is that God designed a society where he figured at least one-twelfth of the people would be dedicated to making sure that the others stayed in remembrance of God's word so that the whole nation together would accomplish it. That was the purpose. Amen? Amen. Okay. So then believers are to live as a kind of priesthood, and especially those who serve in a priestly capacity to the body. I mean, if the rest of the people depend upon your service to God, how important is your service to God? But who in the room has nobody depending on them? So I, I pastor a church with my brothers, with Wade and Matthew. So in some level, you depend upon us for teaching. Of course, if my children didn't even go to our church, which is unthinkable, they would have depended on me for something, right? Every father is a priest in his own home first. Every mother is a Sunday school teacher seven days a week, right? Who is depending on you? They say, well, I'm single. What are you supposed to be to your peer group if iron sharpens iron? If you're supposed to pursue righteousness along with those who are... The whole idea of one day I'll be in a full-time call is destructive to the actual call that you have. Can I tell you the truth? I was full-time from the moment I got born again. Amen. I just never allowed myself to receive money from it until there was no other option. When God left me, no other choice. That was 20 years. We have to get out of this hierarchical mentality of a professional priesthood. We're supposed to be a nation of priests right now. Means Mario is as competent to be the priest in his home as Benny Hinn coming to pray for his children. And his hair doesn't look as funny. How about Joshua 21, verse 41 and 42? Who's going to read that? Oh, good. 
The towns of the Levites and the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture land. Each of these towns had pasture land surrounding it. This was true for all these towns. There were 48... Is it not there? Okay. There were 48 Levitical towns. Of the 48, six would become uh, cities of refuge. The priests were not allowed to congregate in a monastery. They were dispersed throughout Israel the same way that believers are dispersed throughout the world today. As you start to look at this map, can you all see green dots and white dots? I try to look. Those green dots and white dots are Levitical cities. Do you see how they're dispersed throughout Israel? Yes. The red ones we'll come back to, those are cities of refuge. But if you took Israel, we're going to show you later, you can divide it into thirds. They're evenly dispersed throughout Israel, and they are for a reason. God wanted his people at every level of society in every corner of the globe. He never wanted a singular group that was holy that everybody else looked at as a city on the shining hill. Mm-hmm. That is not what, uh, what that parable means. In fact, we'll cover it here in a minute. Amen. Uh, we are supposed to let our light shine before men. The idea that you will run a Christian business in a Christian community, go to a Christian school, uh, hide in some kind of Christian conclave, I understand why people do it. It's like we need an isolated group for a nursery school. We need that. Because while they're tender and young, they have to be nurtured and matured. The problem is, once we create that environment, we don't allow anybody to mature, and we push back their maturity date until now. When are you expected to do something for the Lord? 20? 30? 40? I mean... I'm I'm meeting adults every day now that still live like children in their parents' house and they have been in college for seven years. I mean, all of the time. When do we go and do what we're supposed to do? And let's just be honest. It's parents are failing to raise their children. They're scared to death they can't succeed. And so they let them live with them forever. The best thing that can happen is you have a maturity date, you know? Amen. And if it's not 18, and it's not, I mean, in biblical days it was 13. Now, now it, you know, in World War II it was 18. Now it's, I don't know, somewhere around 35. You know, it's about the time you get a real job, you pay taxes, and you start to watch the news and realize that, your chic ideas will actually ruin the world. Wow. You know? Um, that's not how God wanted this. Mm-hmm. He wanted nation of priests and that they would be being trained from the time they were born so that by the time they were 25, they were excellent. Amen. At 50, they were fit to supervise everybody. And at 75, they still weren't done. That was a beautiful way to do it, huh? Yes. In this map, I'm going to make it small enough for you to see the whole thing for a minute. There is no area of the country, not north, not south, not west, not east, that does not have Levitical cities as a standard bearer in the country. Uh, who wants to read? Brenton, take Matthew 5, 11 through 17. <coughs> 
Yeah, as soon as you get it. Matthew 5, 11 through 17. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Hold there for a second. His translation said if the salt becomes tasteless, <laughs> it's no longer good for anything. Christian, if you become tasteless? No. I don't just mean tasteless in the sense that your taste buds no longer work. Have you lost something of the Spirit of Christ? See, when you put salt into something, it dramatically changes everything. It both acts as a preservative and a flavor enhancer. And I mean, man, you put too much salt in something, and you know it immediately, don't you? Mm-hmm. Does life just kind of become bland for you in your Christian world? Are you losing your saltiness? You taste more like Yankee food than Cajun food? It's a fair question. Let's examine what it would look like if you were tasteless. Well, you'd have little to no effect on the world around you. Are you tasteless? If we turn off all of the lights in here, no matter how small the candle is that is lit, it'll have an effect on the entire room on some level, won't it? Yes. No matter how small, even if it was as small as a mustard seed, are you tasteless? Do you have no effect on the environment around you? Do you know why that would be? Because things tend to reach an equilibrium if there's not a supernatural agent in it. Mm. All other things becoming equal, you become the same temperature as whatever else is around you. That is the degrading world we live in. But salt, it can't really lose its saltiness. It's a figure of speech. It either is salt or it's not salt. Christian, you can't really lose your effect on the outside world. Look at the next verse. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. It gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He didn't put 48 cities together so that we had one big mega light. (coughs) Because anywhere the light was, it would reach its sphere of influence. Anywhere that it was. So he put 48 of them throughout Israel so that the lamp of Israel would stay burning and 48 places spread into three sections around the country. Now, let me ask you, why has he put you where you're at? What is the world you're supposed to affect? Surely it's your sphere of influence that's around you right now, huh? Amen. Everybody wants to go somewhere, and we're a church that sends. We will not send you if you're not affecting the world around you right now. Because you will be there whatever you are here, and if you are tasteless here, you will be tasteless there. If you are not a change agent here, you will not be a change agent there. So why does God have you here now? To learn to shine brightly. Amen. And it's not hard. Your sphere is as big as he wants it to be. 
A man can only receive that which he was given from heaven. Your sphere that you're responsible for is what he's put in your life. You don't have to dream for something else. Start with the life that you have. Amen. That's a good point. You know, everybody wants to be a leader. Turn around and look to see who's following you, and that will tell you what kind of leader you've been called to be. If there is no one following you, perhaps you should focus on being a follower. Amen. It's a good word. Good word. Yeah. Well, you may not like it, but it is the truth. Yeah. And if you see a growing number of people following behind you, the thing that ought to make you do the most is feel responsible. Holy fear, not pride. If pride is there, they're following you because you're like them. Okay, so as believers and priests, we're responsible for shining the light in every area of the world. And of the map of Levitical cities, it literally shows an even disbursement throughout Israel. Is there such a thing as a God-forsaken land? Well, there's not supposed to be. There's just church-forsaken. If we actually lend to the Lord, it'll show up by going to the areas nobody else wants to go to. Amen. Because you believe that every area of the world is supposed to have that. Of the 48 cities, there's no Levite who said, screw that, I'm not going there. And some of the places they had to go, there were still enemies. There were still giant bodies laying around. They were border towns. Is it safe there? Every time I get asked that by a Christian, it makes me want to insult you. (laughs) Every time. Is it safe there? Well, I didn't ask you to go for a reason. (laughs) Your life doesn't belong to him now. It's not going to belong to him there. You better settle home base before we go there. Because for those of us that have already given our life away, we don't care whether it's safe there. It's an issue of they don't have. That's that's it. Are we neglecting the world? Let's look at just one of the allotments in chapter 21. We're not going to go through them all. We're going to look at one allotment. And I think it's going to bless you. My wife's giving me that eye like, Pastor, you're being too difficult. (laughs) Wednesday, you're going to hear the kindest message you've ever heard from me, I promise. But it's not Wednesday yet. (laughs) Who will read for us? Frank, would you take uh, Joshua 21... 9 through 13. We're going to take one allotment. It's the place the very first lot fell, and it's an important one. From the tribes of Judah and Simeon, they allotted the following towns by name. These towns were assigned to the descendants of Aaron, who were from the Kohathite clans of the Levites, because the first lot fell to them. They gave them Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, with its surrounding pasture land, and the hill country of Judah. Arba was the forefather of Anak. But the fields and villages around the city they had given to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, as his possession. So to the descendants of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron, a city of refuge for one accused of murder. You can stop there. There's so much of this verse that we've already covered pieces of. And because of that... I want to go over it in a kind of overview for you. Those of you that weren't here in previous weeks, if you don't understand something, raise your hand and ask. I won't embarrass you. Uh, Also, the people sitting next to you should have notes on it. When you look at verses 9 through 12, 
Judah and Simeon gave Kiriath Arba, which becomes Hebron, to the descendants of Aaron. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so Judah, which is a, a southern tribe, with Simeon smack dab in the middle of it, landlocked inside of Judah, they give Kiriath Arba, which becomes known as Hebron, to the descendants of Aaron. Define those names and look how pretty that becomes. Anybody remember what Judah means? Praise. Simeon? Hearing. Hebron? Fellowship. Praise and hearing from God give fellowship to the priest. That's beautiful all by itself if you have nothing else. You, you know what? What the priest around you need you to do? Be joyful, praise God, and hear from him. Amen. That, that's what we need. Uh, you want to be a blessing to your pastor? Don't 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 have some silly hallmark day where you send your pastor a card. He doesn't want a card, I promise. Just like your dad didn't want a tie on every Father's Day his entire life. What your pastor wants is he wants you to learn to rejoice in difficult situations. Amen. He wants you to learn to hear from God yourself and not be dependent upon someone else. If he doesn't want that, find a new pastor. You are in the wrong town, on the wrong flight, the wrong ship, going in the wrong direction. Kiriath Arba was taken from someone. When you look at these verses, who was it taken from? Anak. So Arba's daddy was Anak, and Anak was a giant. Y'all remember that? I want to read to you something. This is Luke 11, 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Do you know who said that? Jesus. Jesus. Now let's apply it here. Caleb entered into a strong man's house. He stole his possessions because he had a different spirit, the mighty spirit of the living God. He was stronger than the strong man. He attacked and overpowered him because the kingdom of God was with him. That is the DCD, and it is repeatable. Amen. You hear me? It's repeatable. What Caleb did is he looked at something and said, I can do that. God helping me, I will go up and attack, and I will win. Because of that, Hmm. Caleb is the one who took Hebron from the strong man, and it is where he lived when the tribal heads allotted it to Aaron's descendants. Praise and hearing gave the priest a place. The mighty man's faith allowed his relatives, praise and hearing, Judah and Simeon, to provide for the priest. And it became the first city to be known as a city of refuge to which others could run. Consider the consequence of Caleb's faith. He saved national Israel. A whole generation dies, but he keeps a spark alive that says we can still do what God says. He raises up with Joshua a whole nation of people who go in and actually do it. And then at 85 years old, he sees a city full of giants 
and he decides to run them out so that it becomes known as a city of fellowship with God. Amen. And in doing it, the very first lot that ever fell for a Levitical city, where are we going to put priests? You can put them in Caleb's backyard. They'll be safe. Amen. You can put them in Caleb's backyard because even the priests might need somebody to lean on sometime. Wow. You can put them in Caleb's backyard because if you can get a mighty man of faith working with the priest, it becomes a city of refuge to which others can run to. Oh my God, is there a Caleb in the room? See, the priesthood was supposed to work with the tribes and the tribes with the priesthood. It was never elect a leader to go do your work. It was always about how to overcome the strong man. And you know what the Bible doesn't say? Jesus doesn't say that he's not strong. He doesn't say they're not giants. He doesn't say it's not difficult. He simply says, if I can do it, then the finger of God is among you. Amen. Oh, man, what are we looking for? Mm. Your finger or God's fist? Oh. See, I want a five-fold ministry integrated with the body working in every corner of the world with absolutely no division between clergy and laity. But as much as the priests have to do something different, the laity does too. Yeah, yeah. you got to quit lifting men up, and you got to quit using that as an excuse for why you are not Caleb. Right. Caleb was not a priest. Who did more for Israel, the priest or Caleb? Come on. Well, we'll never know because they work together. Amen. Come on now. That's good. We need both. Amen. You know what else we call Kiriath Arba? Kiriath Sefer, house of the book. Yeah. Debir, which means sanctuary, but it goes down in history as Hebron. I had the best time in Hebron with Brother Justin Treister. We walked into a restaurant full of old Jews, and it was full, and we had been swimming in the Dead Sea, and we were nasty. There was nowhere to sit. And there were like four guys at a table that would fit eight. So we wanted their table. <coughs> I walked over and said, guys, I'll buy you all a round of drinks if we could just get you to move right over here. And uh, he looked at me very confused. I was like, no, really, I, I don't mind. What do, what do you all have? I'll, I'll get a whole round if you'll just scoot over, you know. He said, you would buy us drinks just for us to move from here to there? The old man put his hand on my face and said, you're beautiful, and kissed my forehead and said, we'd be happy to move. Please don't buy us drinks. You know where that happened? In the city that Caleb won. Amen. Your faithfulness will pay forward through the generations if you'll just do it. Okay? It's time to take over the strong man's house. Okay? We can sit around and talk about how strong he is or we can put on the armor of God and go to work. Before we move from chapter 20, and we're going to get into the city of refuge, which we just started to touch on a little bit, I want to pray right now Amen. for the spirit of Caleb. Amen. I want to provide for the priest. I want to dispossess demons. I want to establish a refuge that the righteous can run to in times of trouble. And you know what? If we don't fight for it, it won't happen. I've watched over the last 10 years, the devil attacks our finances, he attacks our friendships, he attacks the things that help us stand and do what we do. You know what that proves to me? We cannot do this alone. Amen. That's why we're here. You question what your place is in this body? 
Stop questioning what your place is and just be a part of the body. Amen. Amen. That's a good word. You know, what we need is for you to be you. That's what we need. I don't want you to mail in a check and not come. I don't want you to watch online so that you can just get the teaching. We need you. I don't need your resources. I don't need something from you. I need you. Because what we cannot do alone gets exponentially multiplied in a successful way when we stand together. One chases, and two chase. Don't tell me we don't need you. What if the enemy brought a thousand and one? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Wow. And I've watched this pattern with the devil. We see somebody decide that they no longer have a place among us. They're usually hiding sin. They step out in some noble way to make our lives easier since they were having to be corrected so much, which is not making our lives easier. And within two months' time, they can become an enemy trying to burn down everything that this church ever tried to do. Cain doesn't just leave. He goes and builds a city in opposition to the works of God. I don't want that. I don't want that for you. You know, I don't want your unfaithfulness to ruin your family line. I would rather see faithfulness like Caleb provide a place for future priests to come up. To provide a city of refuge for other people to run to. A place where lives can be saved. That's what that's that's why God took scared teenagers that fell in love with the Lord and bound us together in a covenant that is stretched from a parking lot in Louisiana all the way to here, and it's why you're sitting here tonight. Don't tell me God can't do it with you. Amen. Let's pray for a spirit of Caleb, and then we're going to hit chapter 20, and it's going to change your life. Mighty God, we just ask tonight that there would be a shaking in the heavens. Lord, I'm tired of seeing the people of God tired. Lord, that there might be an energy and a holy vigor that come upon this room. Holy One, that Your Spirit would well up inside these people. That they would go up and take the good land. Almighty God, let that different spirit move in us tonight. Holy One, will You shake the hearts of the people that there might be cities of refuge. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, for the sake of Your church. For the sake of your church, mighty God, stir yes. these people. Yes, Lord. Mighty God, it's time for us to rise up, Jesus. We're asking, Lord God, that you would obliterate our excuses tonight, Lord God. Obliterate our fears, Lord God. Obliterate our timidity, Lord. Obliterate sin in our lives, Lord God. Obliterate any excuses we might have, Lord God. And help us to become the people that you have called us to be, Jesus. We want to support, Lord God. We want to trailblaze, Lord. We want to walk in the callings that we receive from you, Lord God. Father, help us not to stop short of what you've called us to, Lord. Help us to boldly take take steps forward in our lives, in our families, Lord God, in our workplaces, wherever you've placed our feet, Lord God. Let us be the light that you've called us to be in Jesus' name. There are no victims in here. We are are more than conquerors. See, if you begin to believe that, then you too will create cities of refuge wherever your feet land. See, I never, ever asked for anything that is going on in my life right now. I didn't do it. I just so fell in love with the Lord 
that people began coming to me. Amen. You know how ridiculous it is to go find an 18-year-old to teach you something? I mean, do you have any idea how silly that is? But there were people beating on my door because they saw the man who was once wicked turned overnight into somebody head over heels in love with Jesus. And I was every bit as bold for Jesus as I ever was the devil. Okay? You need to think of your life in those terms. Because I don't have a college education. Amen. I'm not classically trained in any way. And I've been to over 30 countries preaching the gospel. And in every city I've ever lived in, there are spirit-filled people behind me. Do you know why? Because I still want to kill giants, and it hadn't stopped. Okay? Amen. You get that on you, and it's the Holy Ghost. It's not, I've been attacked by leaders, attacked by former pastors, best friends depart. None of it's a, it's, it's not a problem. Because you either believe that God is with you or you don't. And once you begin to believe that, the giants get smaller. I'm just going to tell you. In reality, they're bigger, and in your eyes, they're getting smaller because God's with you. David had a giant killing spirit. My favorite verse of chapter 21, very favorite, it's verse 45. Would somebody read it? Not one of all the Lord's good promises did the house of Israel fail. Everyone was fulfilled. Not one of the Lord's good promises failed. Everyone fulfilled. They were fulfilled for Israel, and they will be fulfilled for you. See, all you have to do is live a life of faith, and you will see God's good promises come to pass. If you've spent time in the last couple weeks thinking about what God hasn't done for you, that is not a life of faith, and God won't bless it. Start thinking about what he has already done and let that encourage you into what he's going to do. Amen. And think of it that way. He's already done this and he is going to do this. Amen. Don't allow yourself into the kind of negativity that focuses on the one hat at Disney World you can't have. No. <laughs> Joshua 20, verses 1 and 2. Who will read it? Go ahead, Natalie. We're going to cities of refuge now. We're covering our first chapter now. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses. When Moses was living, he gave instructions for the establishment of cities of refuge. One of them was Hebron that we just spoke about. To get that city of refuge required a giant killing spirit. It required a Caleb. It required Judah giving of their inheritance, Simeon giving of their inheritance, and it required the Kohathite descendants of Aaron to be there, not with Korah or anybody else who ran away. Look at all it required to create one city of refuge. A man of faith killing giants, uh, a man of vision proclaiming it in advance, a protege rising up to lead the people in, uh, a priesthood who would be there to receive it, two loyal tribes that had been faithful with the inheritance they were getting. There is no such thing as success that hangs on one man's shoulders. Amen. Defeat can come on one man's shoulder, but success takes a team always. Amen. Amen. I want to hand out some passages to talk to you about those instructions. So Nolan, take Deuteronomy 19, 1 through 3. Chris, Take Deuteronomy 19, 8 through 9. 
Then I'm going to show you some pictures of them. When the Lord your God was destroyed, when the Lord your God was destroyed, no, has. When has the Lord your God has the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads to them and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. Do you hear the faith in his voice? When the Lord God has destroyed the nations. Yeah. 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 When, when he has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you. It hasn't happened yet, but Moses knows it's going to happen. Yep. Amen. Oh, man. That's good. What has God told you that you need to know is going to happen? Now let me tell you the other side of this. You know why you need to kill the giants that you're facing right now? Because you can't build cities of refuge that people are run to while you are still wrestling with these giants. Oh, Come on. That's a good word. See, it might be that the things that are attacking you, lust of the eyes, pride of life, the uh, desires of what one has and wants, though it may be that the reason the things that are attacking you are to keep you from becoming the refuge God called you to be. Wow. You know why it's time to put childish things behind us? Because there are lives on the line. Yes. Moses said, when you have... I'm telling you, church, if you have the Holy Ghost, you have whatever you need. And if you are full of the Holy Ghost, then I'm saying when you have put these giants under your feet, turn towards the world. Reach out in every direction. Start with what he put in front of you right away. Yes. You know what the number one call of a man of God is? Raise your children well. Start by disciplining them. The whole world will get better if you just hold a godly line in your own house. And then once you learn to do it in your house, you'll train yourself to do it in churches. And once you learn to do it in churches, God will let you take that message to the whole world. Because it's how we started with Abraham. He chose him because he would lead his family. Amen. How about Deuteronomy 19.8? Deuteronomy 19.8. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on oath to your forefathers and gives you the whole land he promised them because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you are to set aside three more cities. Now, I, I, I could preach about this all day long and it's, it's off topic, so I'm going to try not to. He knows that they're going to drive out the enemies. Did you hear that? Mm. Yeah. You know why? God said it. Then he said, if... He enlarges your territories. If you are a saved Christian, you are going to win. You hear me? God said it. But the margin that you win by, that's going to be up to you. You can have your butt burned off like Lot running out of Sodom if you want. I mean, you can get the hairs on the back of your neck on fire if you want. You're still winning. You just pass through like one naked through the flames. But if you expand your own territories. You know what happens? You get more cities of refuge. Amen. See, he knew they would drive them out. He just didn't know whether they would rest on their laurels or they would, would go all the way. Let me ask you, do you want to go a respectable distance in no. the eyes of your friends or do you want to go all the way with God? All the way. 
that we already have maximum cities of refuge, huh? Yes. Yeah. Let me show you what that looks like. I got a satellite picture, y'all. These are the six cities of refuge. In the center of that, at the bottom, you see the Sea of Galilee. I'm sorry, at the bottom, you see the Dead Sea in the Bible called the Arabah or the Salt Sea. Then the River Jordan runs north to uh, Tiberias, Israel, Lake Kennesaret or the Sea of Galilee in the north. On the east side, we have Golan, Ramoth Gilead, and Bezer. Or as Jen says, Brazier. <laughs> Can't make fun of your friends and family. Who can you make fun of? Uh, on the left side, the west side, we have Hebron, Shechem, and Kadesh. Do you see that it's evenly distributed? Two in the north, two in the midsection, two in the south. Three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side of the Jordan. There's a reason for that. God never wanted you to be further than a day's run to the nearest refuge. Amen. Come on now. Amen. I got chills all over my body. You were never supposed to be more than a day's run. Are you taking steps to put yourself further from the fellowship that would save you? Wow. He never wanted you to be more than a day's run to the closest refuge. If you got yourself in unintentionally in a bind, he wanted you to be able to intentionally run in any direction and hit a city that you could be saved in. Come on, that's good news. Never more than a day away. Man, if you let that sit on your soul for a minute, the Lord renews His mercies every morning. Oh, man. Never let the sun set on your anger. You know why? Because you're going to wake up to a whole new world tomorrow. I'm not just trying to be positive here. I'm telling you, in the geography of Israel, He made sure that you were never more than a day's journey. People that have mapped this out say that you're never more than 32 miles from a, a city of refuge. You can switch that off, Pastor. Yes, sir. I'll give you all of these notes when the study is over. All right, let's pick up in Numbers 35. Who doesn't mind reading? <clears throat> Jacob, you take Numbers 35, 9 through 12. We're going to pick up some beautiful things. Y'all bored, or would you like to go first? No, no, Come on, let's go. All the way. You didn't all have pictures of a satellite map of the uh, ancient cities of refuge, did you? No. You want to make sure it wasn't your screensaver or something. It might be now. It might be now. It will be now. Yeah, come on. Numbers 35, 9 through 12. Yep. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, like some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be they will be places of refuge from the avenger, so that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. <laughs> this is such an interesting thing. I might have fun with this, I can tell. You know, when you talk about the Avenger That's a popular topic these days, especially you know, with those that have not hit puberty or those that have stayed in puberty into their 30s and love to go see Marvel movies. It's difficult for us to imagine. 
Don't get me started on video games. <laughs> Waste my life. Just go ahead. On the mission field. Yeah. Digging in ditches. Swimming across rivers. Dragging my fat body all over India. And come home and you have a YouTube clip on video that you're an intergalactic assassin. Mom biting her nails. Just doesn't know what to do with what she should be describing as a teenager and instead he's in his 20s. All he wants to do is play his Xbox. Who bought it for him? Because we know he didn't have a job. <laughs> Mom, why don't you take it outside and light it on fire? Well, I couldn't do that. He just played games on his phone. Who pays for his phone? So you're supporting this porn habit. It's incredible. It's like we've lost our mind. Do you know you are not supposed to enable people to sin? Do you know that? Even if they're your own children. You're not supposed to enable people to sin. Are you helping people because you just can't take a righteous stand? That's not godly. It's cowardly. It's not Christian. It's satanic. It's not a good thing. You're going to find out about this word Avenger some more tonight. And it will change the way that you see it. But let me start with this. It's difficult for us to imagine a time with no state police force. Israel had no police. You could drive whatever speed you wanted. Each citizen was responsible for following the Torah. And the community executed judgment on offenders with the priest instructing them. In other words, an entire society that had heard the voice of God at Sinai and a group of priests that were there to remind them of God's word, society did not accept behavior that was ungodly. Society was the police force. Man, how much better would we be if that was the case? Yeah. You complain about police brutality, you're upset about what the police do in your neighborhood. How did your neighborhood get in the shape that it's in? It happened when each family stopped being a police force to all the families that were around them. When you decided to look the other way while that kid was selling crack on the corner, you own that problem now. Mm. You know, there was a time period in our country where if a young man said a curse word out loud in public, every adult who heard it would correct it. Now nobody feels responsible for anything other than themselves, and they don't take that seriously either. Notice that the placement of the cities... In this situation, meant that you were always within day of help and within a day of judgment. Always. How much closer, how much better would your life be if you didn't wait till Sunday to think about such things? What if every day you woke up thinking about both salvation and judgment? Amen. Moses. And Joshua, as instructed by God, ordered that roads would be built to every city. I want to share with you how a Bible commentator that I like, a dictionary writer, a Bible dictionary named Unger. It's New Unger's Bible Dictionary. He says, according to the rabbis, in order to aid a fugitive, it was the business of the Sanhedrin to keep roads leading to the cities of refuge in the best possible repair. No hills were left in place. Every river was bridged, 
and the road itself was to be at least 32 cubits broad. At every turn were guideposts bearing the word refuge, and two students of the law were appointed to accompany the fleeing man and to pacify, if possible, the avenger, should he overtake the fugitive. Wow. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Pastor Wade found each of the references in the Jewish writings for us. I'll just give you a few. If you want them afterwards, I'll give you all of them. Uh, Baba Bathra, which is a Babylonian Talmud tractate, number 100, section B. It covers the length and the width of the road going to a city of refuge. A normal road was 16 cubits wide, the city of refuge. It had to be 32. Think about that. Hmm. We, we, we had to double lane the roads going to cities of refuge. Um, as you get into the Mishnah, in uh, a section regarding murder and the preservation of life, uh, Tractate 8, verse 5, we find uh, the bridges have to be built. There can be no natural barriers. You have to remove hills. Wow. Also in the Mishnah, in Sefer Nezikim, on murder and life, you find out that the court has to maintain the roads to the cities of refuge. We can keep going with that and keep going with it, but I think you kind of get the picture, don't you? There's a reason for this. Bloodshed defiles a land. If what you have are unsolved murders, if what you have are blood feuds, Somebody hurt somebody in your family, so you hurt somebody in their family. According to the Bible, that defiles the whole land. If bloodshed defiles the land, what do you think millions of abortions do? Think about that next time you say, God bless America. For what? For our pornography? For what? For our abortion? For what? A divorce rate that is way above 50%? Bless us for what? The fact that garneria has never grown as fast as it has in the last two years in a society? Right? Bless us for what? What would you like to be blessed for? Bloodshed defiles. I keep wanting to say defiles. It ruins. It stains. It damages a land. I want to show you that. Uh, So... Ludwig's in the Lionheart. Take uh, Genesis 4.10. And Randy, take Genesis 9.6. And Ibrahim, take Numbers 35.33-34. And Larissa, take Deuteronomy 19.10-13. Then we'll get back to the adventure. Genesis 4.10. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. When you read verses 11 and 12, you find out that the ground is irrevocably different in its behavior towards man after that. Isn't that interesting? When Cain sheds Abel's blood and the blood hits the ground, the ground no longer behaves the same way for the descendants of Adam. Let that settle in for a minute. The blood hitting the ground actually changed the way that the ground would behave forever. In a negative way. 
or was it a negative way? He said, cursed is the ground for your sake. Is it negative? That hard work was supposed to drive us towards Messiah. And when the blood hit the soil of your heart, it changed it in an irrevocable way. Some would say it's negative. You give up everything. You turn away from everything. I would say it's positive. It's driven you straight towards Messiah. You have nothing but Him. Amen. When the blood touched the ground, it changed it forever. It also demanded a response. By the way, it's not blood in Hebrew. It's bloods. It's plural. In the view of the rabbis, and maybe in the view of God, Cain didn't kill Abel. He killed all of Abel's descendants. Everybody who ever would come from him. Bloodshed is a serious thing in the Bible. And God, when he set up a society, made 48 Levitical cities to teach people what was right and what was wrong. He made six cities evenly dispersed, never more than a day away, so that if there was an instance of bloodshed, there was somebody who could help you sort it out. Because he did not want violence on the earth. Okay, how about Genesis 9? This is the remedy for bloodshed. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. We live in a day where Dr. Spock have created parent fruit loops. And, uh, and I'm really sorry that it's true. You've heard it so long that it doesn't sound strange to you. But the kind of psycho babble, worldly trash that you hear is that if you spank your children, they'll become hitters. In my experience, when children are not spanked, they become hitters. Yes. Yes. They're biters first. <laughs> Children's church can be rough. <laughs> Capital punishment cannot be considered wrong by a serious Christian. If you read your Bible, you don't have to get to the ninth chapter before you see God himself endorsing it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. It was such a serious thing when one man killed another that society, mankind, must put to death the murderer. Must. You don't have the right, just because you're Californian, to decide that you don't want to do it. Mm. Too busy hugging trees and smoking weed to do what God says to do. But this is what God says. And you know what? This is before the commonwealth of Israel. This is a law given to all mankind. Capital punishment is godly. Whether you like it or not, if you think you're more compassionate than God, then take it up with Him at the judgment. But the first time that God addresses this subject, this is what he says. That's interesting, isn't it? It is the remedy for bloodshed. Killing a murderer does not uh, extend sin. It purges it from your society. Okay, The common thinking that this is a second wrong that won't make a right, it's absolutely wrong. It comes from misunderstanding, redemption, and avenging. And I'm going to teach it to you tonight because it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I I almost can't wait to get there. Numbers 35-33. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. 
do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell, where I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. Listen to God's reasoning. You live here on a temporary basis. I'm intertwined with this place on a permanent basis. Don't let bloodshed pollute the land. In the chapter, the uh, um, context suggests that when murders go undealt with, um, that pollutes the land. And the only way to atone for blood that was shed on the land is by doing the appropriate thing with the one who shed the blood. That is the only way to do it. Which is beautiful since Israel was guilty of bloodshed and its land was polluted. And the only way that you could have that made right is for an Israeli to die for Israel. Amen. Yeah. So king of the Jews dies for his people. Yes. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's pretty spectacular in and of itself. Yes. How about Deuteronomy 19 and verse 10? Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. You can become guilty of bloodshed by allowing murderous situations around you. You do nothing to stop. Take that pacifist, put it in your pipe and smoke it. The Bible never teaches that you stand still and watch somebody else be killed. Never teaches that. Proverbs 24.16 says the exact opposite. You are guilty if you fail to carry out God's justice. And he describes it. And we're going to look at it here. Okay. Um, how about verses 11 and 12 of Deuteronomy 19? But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, <clears throat> then flees to one of these cities. The elders of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. He must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it will go well with you. Now, how do you purge the guilt of shedding innocent blood? A governmental institution, in this case the elders, <coughs> renders a judgment, and then the judgment is carried out by a person that is called an avenger here, who happens to be a near relative. When we say this, it becomes necessary to purge evil from a society. Now, uh, consider what happens if there are no limits. The person who's already on uh, life imprisonment for murder, uh, what incentive does he have to not kill a guard? Nothing. Nothing. Because you're not going to do a thing to him for it. Uh, when there is no uh, divine line drawn in the sand that says this behavior will not be accepted, then all behavior becomes okay. okay? Nazi Germany's defense for their behavior was our law said it was okay. The rest of humanity said there's a law that's higher than yours. That was the basis for the Nuremberg Trials. I don't know if we could win that argument today because the rest of humanity has decided that there is no higher law. It became necessary for someone to purge evil from among Israel, and that introduces us to the term avenger. You see it in Numbers 35, uh, 12 as uh, avenger, or in verse 19 as avenger of blood. When I say avenger today, probably people think of a movie. Right? The Avengers. This is uh, where my wife is smiling at Thor. And, uh, and, and my little girl thinks uh, Iron Man is, uh, is special. Like, I don't understand that. Uh, 
No, Amy P. Rose in love with the Hulk. I, I don't know how that happens. But I like where she's going with it. She's looking for passion. Um, when you hear the word avenger, it sounds like revenger, right? Revenge and to be avenged feel to us distinctly non-Christian traits, don't they? Yeah. Very interesting thing. Why on earth would something that you want to market to the whole world, would you call it the Avengers? And is that what they do in that cartoon made for grown-ups? Do they go around with acts of revenge? It's not, is it? It turns out that the DC comic, The Avengers, was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Y'all know who Stan Lee is? When you hear Stan Lee and Jack Kirby... That doesn't sound like Jews. Of course, they were both born under different names. Stanley Martin Lieber was born to Romanian Jewish parents, and Jacob Kurtzberg was also a Jew. The term revenge and avenge have a largely negative connotation in English, but in Hebrew, the concept behind this word is entirely different than English. Can we turn on our screen? The word for avenger in Hebrew, wow, my fonts are not right. We'll keep it in Hebrew over there. That's a gimel, an alf, and a lamed. Uh, a verb meaning to redeem or act as a kinsman redeemer. The word means to act as a redeemer for a deceased human being, like Boaz and Ruth, in Ruth 3.13. To redeem or buy back from bondage uh, somebody who is sold into slavery in Leviticus 25. To redeem or buy back a kinsman's possessions. If you were poor and sold your house, and I bought your house because we were related and I loved you and didn't want you to lose your house. Or in Numbers 35, when you avenge a kinsman's murder, it might be more accurate to say you redeemed it because bloodshed defiles the land. So when we're seeing this word, um, it's important to recognize something. To say avenge, or or, um, as you see it in the text, a avenger of blood... It could be said a kinsman redeemer. There's not much difference. Actually, this word has three variations in Hebrew, and they they range from to redeem to soil, like a a, a stain. And it's because it depends on how you handle this very important subject, whether it's an act of redemption or it's a terrible profanity. Do you follow what I mean here? Okay. With that in mind, I'm going to show you some things. This is actually a page in my Bible. I'll just leave it here for you. Avenger versus Redeemer. They're both Strong's number 1350. The way most people uh, would pronounce this is Gael. And um, it's a Gimel, an Alf, and a Lamet. When you look at those in Paleo, I'll make that large enough for you all to see it. Those of you that like and know what Paleo is. The gimel looks like a foot, the alf looks like an ox, and the lamed looks like a shepherd's staff. It carries with it the connotation of walking and a strong teaching. 
The idea of redemption or avenging has to do with carrying out a very strong and difficult teaching. Okay? One of the most interesting things about this root that I could find is when you look at them in the scripture, the one that is on the left down here, this is from Numbers 35.20, where it's translated the avenger. I guess that's kind of small for you. Where you see it as avenger, there is something in front of the gimel. Here's the gimel. Here's the alf. Here's the lamed. There's something in front of it. Y'all recognize that Hebrew letter? It's a mem. When the mem comes before the gimel, it's translated avenger. Let me move this screen. When the mem, this is Psalm 107, verse 2, when the mem comes after the lamed, at the end of the word, it's translated redeemed. That becomes very interesting given that the mem is a character that represents blood. Your positioning to the blood determines whether or not you're avenging or being redeemed. When thinking of the avenger of blood or a redeemer, they all involve acts of righteousness. The question is whether the blood comes before or after walking out the strong teaching. When we walk for the rest of our lives adhering to the teaching of Jesus, his blood is applied at the end of our life. Redemption. When something must occur at the beginning or you cannot move forward, in Hebrew, that's avenging. Now, to get away from the negative connotation, understand something. If Chris was murdered and I did it, and you as a people did nothing to stop that, Chris's murder is still defiling your society and the land. For righteousness' sake, you must kill me. The blood comes first before the walk. You can't go any further. If somebody is being redeemed, then they have walked after the Lord, they're striving towards Him, and the blood is applied at the end of their life. It's possible to both be avenged and redeemed. (laughs) See, by society taking the right action, the man's going to face the Lord, and it will be up to the Lord whether he applies the blood or not. But if you don't take the right action, he continues in a sin, and society continues to be punished. You see? So when those Jews titled something the Avengers, and that sounds so strange to us, what they're really saying is the guys who take righteous action so we can all move forward. That's really what they're saying. And it's totally lost on us, and our society's corrupt enough to not care. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. You should look into Superman and some of the others. They're all created by Jews, and it's not because they want to rule the world. It's because God has woven into their very story redemption in a way that they can't get away from. By the way, Psalm 107.2, if you don't know that, is let the redeemed of the Lord say so. At the end of our walk, blood is applied, and that's how we're redeemed. Sometimes it's necessary to shed blood on this side of our walk, and that's called avenged. But the word avenged actually means redeemed. So there is a redeeming kind of, of killing on this side, and you can be redeemed on the other side. Both involve a death. That's very interesting. 
a redeeming kind of killing is when somebody raped and murdered your daughter and you forgive them, but you say, this can't happen in our society. We're putting you to death. If God redeems that person on the other side, praise God, that comes from the death of Jesus Christ. Okay? But as a society, when God set it up, he simply said, murders cannot go unanswered. Let's take Numbers 35 and begin in verse 13. And this gets to be fun. It's 9.15. We'll finish in the next 15 minutes, but you won't be sorry we took them. Who's going to read it? I will. Frank, Numbers 35, 13 through 28. And I'll probably interrupt you a little bit. These six towns you will... These six towns you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites, aliens, and any other people living among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. Hold there for just a second. Did you hear? It's for Israel, it's for aliens, it's for anybody living there. In other words, the city of refuge was not only for the national Jew. It was for anybody who could get to a city of refuge. Do you hear that speaking of Christ? First for the Jew, but also for everyone else. Amen. Okay, keep going. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. For if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill, and he strikes someone so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. For if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill, and he hits someone so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. Hold there. That means that there is somebody appointed for the task of writing it when a murder occurs. All right. That task fell to the nearest kinsman. The same way that the right of redemption fell to the nearest kinsman. But you're going to find out it's not supposed to happen without elder approval, governmental approval. The way that that was set up was with cities of refuge all within a day. So you had a responsibility to get to the city of refuge if you were involved in an accidental homicide. If you didn't get there, the avenger could kill you. The Bible's not encouraging it, but he could. Uh, because you, you, in addition to killing somebody by accident, didn't expeditiously get to a city. Does that make sense? Yes. What happens um, if the kinsman does that before the elders uh, render it? Yeah. If you didn't get to the city, it falls on you. So uh, the kinsman is, is free of charges. What happens, though, let's just say that uh, that you were the kinsman um, avenger of blood and uh, it was thought that I uh, killed somebody in your family and so you kill me and I haven't made it to a city yet what's my next relative going to do they're going to come after you and you're going to get to a city and always it would get to an elder and the elders at the city gates would, would settle the issue and that was the point was that Six evenly dispersed cities meant there was always justice nearby, but you had to run to justice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, pick back up, Frank. What verse are we in? Uh, 22. Okay. But if without... No, no, 20. I'm sorry. 20? Yeah. There's a phrase I need to. If, <laughs> if anyone with malice aforethought shoves another 
or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. Hold there. The um, Mosaic Revelation lays down something for all of human history that is different than the other nations. In every other nation we deal with what was done. The Bible actually addresses your motivation. See, if you killed somebody, in most nations you're killed. The Bible wants to know whether you intended to kill them or not. Because it's possible to kill somebody and not be trying to. The phrase malice of forethought makes it from 1600 or 1500 BC all the way down into our legal system today. Yeah. Keith, are you in here? Uh, wherever Keith, yeah, there's an attorney in the very back. We make him sit almost outside the house. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it is still how you determine the difference between degrees of murder today. And you know where it came from? God. Yeah. Now, I, by the same way that you can be innocent in that, Deuteronomy 19.11, it says, if you lie and wait, if you hate your neighbor, yeah. lie and wait for your neighbor, assault your neighbor, and kill your neighbor, then thus and so will happen. Jesus Christ picks up on that because the other rabbis did and said to look at a woman lustfully or to hate your neighbor is the same as murdering or committing adultery. And why? Because it started with an issue of the heart that if unchecked leads to that. This is saying if there was not an issue of the heart and this cons- this is not a consequence of a sinful uh, heart and thought, then there is a remedy. If it was, there was no remedy because sin had to be dealt with. That's really interesting, isn't it? God cares why you did what you did, not just what you did. He cares. What is the sin that leads to death? Uh, sins that lead to death. It says there's one sin that leads to death. In the, in, I think it's in First John 5. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have more than one passage that speaks of the right way to uh, address somebody who is in sin. But there is sin that puts somebody in immediate danger. And he's not saying you should pray about that. You should act. But sin that does not put somebody in immediate danger, we might pray about before we act. Let's not confuse that with blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, which is an unforgivable sin. Those are two separate topics. So he's counseling them how to handle their conflicts in 1 John. And he's saying, I'm not saying that you should pray about a sin that leads to death, because there are sins that lead to death and those that don't. That's a very confusing passage since Romans 6 says all sin leads to death. He's speaking about in an immediate temporal sense. You don't pray when a child is walking in front of a car. You go get them from in front of the car. But if you see your teenager being drawn towards something, you might pray before you act. Different kinds of sin, both eventually lead to death. One would kill you immediately. This is dealing simply with capital punishment, though, and homicide. Okay? Yeah. Let's, uh, the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. The redeemer of blood shall put. The avenger of blood shall put. The one acting righteously on God's behalf is to take care of this. That's an important concept yeah. in a world that has lost all sense of righteous behavior. Okay? Now, my favorite conjunction in this whole passage is coming. But, read that, Frank. But if without hostility someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unintentionally 
or without seeing him, drops a stone on him that could kill him, and he dies. And since he was not his enemy, and he did not intend to harm him, the assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The avenger, or I'm sorry, the assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest, who was anointed with the holy oil. Um, go through <coughs> but, but 28. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city and refuge to which he has fled, and the avenger of blood finds him without finds him outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may he return to his own property. Listen, if you understand what was just being said, and it's been a long evening with lots of reading. It's going to bring words of Jesus into a whole new life. If you meant to do the evil that you did, there was no remedy for you. But if you didn't quite understand what was happening, you threw it and then they walked around the corner like Spence did with that marshmallow that almost killed Gates. (laughs) If it was unintentional, then there was a remedy for your sin. Consider the words then, in Luke 23, 34. <coughs> Forgive them. For they know not what they do. Mm. If they understood what they were doing, there would be no remedy for their wow. sin. Wow. It's precisely because they didn't understand what they were doing that forgiveness could be applied. That's wow. good. Come on now. That's, That's so good. good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're not guilty. I'm simply saying there's a possibility to be redeemed. The city of refuge was available to all who didn't mean to. There's a vast difference between the man who was never enlightened and the one who has tasted of the heavenly gift and has fallen away. Consider that for a second. I'm going to read to you Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and of the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks rain often falling on it and producing a crop useful for those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in its danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. See, if you made it to the city of refuge and your life was saved, you weren't allowed to leave the city of refuge. If you did, it was like you were taking the city of refuge for granted. Think through that for a minute. That's amazing. (laughs) The city of refuge was never intended to propagate sin. It was grace to overcome sin. Come on. <laughs> Titus 2.11 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, meaning grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. Come on now. When grace has appeared to you, when you've made it into the city of refuge, that's not a chance to keep sinning. 
It's a chance to live a godly and upright life. If somebody tries to twist this, the city of refuge into a place that you can continue to murder and get away with it, do you think they would have tolerated that as a society? Why do we as a church allow the twisting of the gospel into a license to commit immorality? Why do we let it happen? Why do we stand by while people teach this all around us and there's not a mass uprising? You know why. Because the people loved their sin. The city of refuge was available to all sojourners, aliens. It was sanctified, meaning it had been set aside, especially for the purpose of being a city of refuge. It was always open. It had roads to it, bridges to it. They were repaired every spring. There were three cities of refuge on the east side, three on the west side. There were two in the north, two in the middle, two in the south. Six of 48 Levitical cities, that's 12.5% of the Levitical cities, were cities of refuge. You were never more than a day's travel from a city of refuge. A city of refuge is a type of Christ. Think through that. Which is easier to reach, a city of refuge or Jesus? Which is more open to all? Which door is never locked? Which is best stocked with provisions? Can you imagine if you got to your city of refuge and the priest died that day? (laughs) Which is more able to help? I want to show you a list of cities real quick. This is the names of the cities of refuge. Kadesh means righteousness. If you get in Jesus, you can never be accused again. Mm. Shechem means shoulder, like a shepherd. If you get in Jesus, he will carry you. Hebron means fellowship. We enter into fellowship with him. Bezer means fortress. He is our strong, safe fortress. In him we're safe. Amen. Ramoth means heights. We dwell at new heights with him. Golan means exile. You're going to get in Jesus, the city of refuge. We are exiles, pilgrims, strangers in this world. Amen. By the way. There is no other help available other than Jesus, the city of refuge. Hebrews 10 teaches us that. Once you're in Him, you cannot go back outside of Him and survive it. There is no group of people more damned than those who were in Christ and have fallen away. And men do their lives show it. There is no kind of wickedness like religious wickedness. Hebrews 7.15 And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. If you're only safe in the city as long as the priest is alive and Jesus cannot die, how long are you safe? Amen. 
He's so much better than that city of refuge. Yeah. Of course, you can't leave the city either as long as the priest is alive. Hebrews 2.14 Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Being in Jesus and his life protecting you is amazing. Hiding in the one location that he saved you, and never being able to go outside of it because you're scared of death, Jesus' death frees you. He overcame death. What can man do to you? Amen. And even if you die, you live. He lives to protect you. He died to free you. Oh, he's just like a city of refuge, isn't he? In the city of refuge, you were hidden from harm. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're supposed to be hidden in Him. Do you still think like the world, act like the world, live like the world? The Bible will renew your mind and teach you to hide yourself in Christ. Be wary of saying that you already have it. If you already have it, then we're going to expect you to behave like you do. Way too many people are saying, oh, I know that, I've got that, I've read my Bible, then why don't you do what it says? It'd be far better to say, I didn't know that, I haven't read that, I haven't taken it seriously, I've called myself a Christian and I haven't lived like one. That'd be a whole lot better than claiming to be mature while you're still living outside the city. Like you all do imagine, something's happening. We're working in a field. Your axe head flies off, it kills someone. How do you feel in that moment? What's going through your mind? Because your life just hit a brick wall. Everything's changed in a moment. If you stay where you're at, you're going to die. You have no choice. You have to flee. You have to run. You have to go to the city of refuge. You make it to the city of refuge. How do you feel? You're relieved. You're not going to be executed. You're not going to be killed. Of course... None of your belongings would be available to you. Whatever you left back at home, you know where it's at? Outside the city of refuge where you're not allowed to go. None of your old friends. None of your old habits. None of your old hobbies. None of your old life. But you'd live. Amen. Now... Amen. That brings into mind a couple other amazing passages. Matthew ten thirty nine. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Amen. You have to lose everything that you have to claim the new life in Christ. And if you will not lose it, you don't have the new life. The way Mark says the same thing, It's slightly different, and it's worth hearing the difference. It's Mark 8, 35 and 36. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? Think about it in the scenario. The axe head's flown off. The person's dropped dead. The kinsman 
Revenger is coming to you. If you try to save your life, what happens? You die. So you turn and run to the city, but somewhere along the way, you're like, you know, I just don't think I can go without my grandfather's watch. I just don't think I can go without anything, whatever it is. What good is it for you to gain that and die? When you recognize you're guilty of, of killing, if not murder, you get to the city as fast as you can and you leave everything else behind. Yeah. Because it's your life. When you got saved, if you tried to take a U-Haul worth of crap from the world into the kingdom, hmm. are you calling yourself born again while you live exactly like you've always lived? How can you be in the city of refuge if you still have everything you ever had, still do everything that you ever did, still live in all the ways that you always lived? How can you be in the city of refuge? Come on. Then we come to it. You were promised help in this life and heaven in the next. You were told Jesus loves you just the way that you are, which was good with you, because you love you just the way that you are. So you've said that you've gone to the city of refuge, but you're still living in the town of destruction. You know how this is, don't you? See, looking at the geography of Israel, you either were in the city or you weren't in the city. How dare you judge whether I'm in the city or not? Only God can do that. Not you were either standing in the city or not. <laughs> Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Wow. Do you find yourself wandering really close to the wall of the city because of the things that you left behind somewhere? Mm. Do you find yourself saying, like, you know, if I was in the world, I would... Be careful, you might be given the opportunity to go back to Egypt. Uh-oh. You know what the extraordinary difference between the city of refuge and Jesus is? Because there's a huge one. <laughs> to get into the city of refuge, you needed to be innocent. Mm-hmm. You're sure as hell not innocent. Mm-hmm. You're guilty as sin. Guilty as homemade sin. Mm. Guilty as apple pie and sin. And Jesus is willing to forgive you. If when you were innocent, you had to leave everything to get to a city of refuge, how much more, knowing that you're guilty as hell, must you leave everything to enter Jesus? Come on. And yet we're going to write volumes of commentaries why the rich young ruler was asked to sell everything and follow Jesus, but you don't have to get rid of everything and follow Jesus. Are you sure? <coughs> Say, well, it's okay, because all these things I have, I'm using for the Lord. Are you really? What are you keeping back for yourself? Ask Ananias and Sapphira how they work out. See, we have these ways of insulating ourselves with doctrine, and the piercing double-edged sword of the Scripture will come and attack the fortress you've built around your heart. If everything you have is the Lord's, do your actions bear that out? Man, what a good feeling it is. <coughs> a poor man hears no threat. Mm-hmm. Proverbs 13 says yeah. that. I don't have anything, so I have nothing to lose. <laughs> the thing I cherish most are relationships. And I don't cherish any of those above my one relationship with Jesus. Amen. Amen. The 
couches that y'all are sitting on, somebody gave us, and I'm thankful they did. There wouldn't be any if you didn't, mm-hmm. right? Everything in our <coughs> lives actually belongs to Jesus because we're painfully aware that Jesus put it here. Yeah. Now, everyone says that, but do you live that way? Do you really want the light of the gospel to go around the world? And if so, what actions in your life prove that? Mm. It's a good time to consider that, isn't it? As you sit here tonight, guilty of sin, we have a king who will remind, who will admit you into a city, but he says you can never look back. Let's go to Joshua 20. We're going to read a couple verses and we'll close. Somebody read Joshua 20 and verse 4. When he flees to one of these cities, he has to stand in the entrance of the city. When you do what to the city? Were you begged to enter the kingdom, or were you running like your life depended on it to get in the kingdom? Did somebody have to sell you the kingdom, or were you running to it and couldn't be stopped from getting there because the avenger was chasing you, and you knew he had a right to put you to death? How did you get to the city? Come on. See, I find out that we're talking to people all of the time that came in the city some other way. Wow. All of the time. Wow. I'm sorry. Keep going. <clears throat> when he flees to one of these cities, he has to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Oh, where do you state your case? Do you do it in the privacy of your heart? Do you do it somewhere alone where nobody sees it? You stand at the gate of the city and you state your case publicly to those who are elders. In other words, those who were in the kingdom before you. Don't tell me you got saved and nobody knew it. We know you're a liar then and a liar now. There is no way to enter the city without the elders of the city recognizing that you belong in the city. See, the church has lost all semblance of that. We say it's a private, personal matter. It's never been a private or personal matter. Ever. Your salvation is not private. It's going to be before the whole world, all of the angels, all of the heavens. And it is not personal. Your salvation, or lack thereof, affects everyone around you. It is a community matter. Amen. Amen. What the church accepts and rejects has to reflect what God accepts and rejects. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth, according to 1 Timothy 3. If we accept what God doesn't accept, we find ourselves enemies of God. If we reject what God accepts, we find ourselves enemies of God. The religious institution had a fine way of hating whores and tax collectors, and Jesus liked them. They loved themselves, and Jesus didn't like them. We better figure out what God accepts and rejects. I'm not begging anybody to get saved. I'm saying when you get saved, everyone ought to be able to see it. And when the people who know you the best go, that guy's had a radical transformation, then we'll admit you in as one of us. Until then, we just tell you, yeah, you're standing here, but you're not really here. Mm. You know how many people are that way in our fired-up church every Sunday? You're with us and you're not with us, and I know it. I mean, let's, let's not pretend. You might get the misunderstanding you're standing inside the city when you're still outside the walls. There was more than one city of refuge. There's more than one godly church. 
We're not esoteric. We're, we're not anywhere near the only one. The question has to be, though, why are you sitting with us on a Sunday if you're really a part of some other church? Mm. Could it be that you say that and you're not a part of any church? What elders would vouch for you? Say, I've seen the change in that life. And if there aren't elders that would vouch for you, are you sure you can vouch for you? Mm. Mm. I'm telling you, all of this starts with standing at the gate and stating your case publicly. <clears throat> we don't trust in real salvation anymore, so we script it for people. Uh-oh. When you stand at the gate, here's what you'll say. Oh. <laughs> we don't even make them say it. We say, I'll say it. You can agree with me. That's all a hellish lie. When the man knows that he's guilty and deserves death, and he is fleeing for the city gate, he'll be screaming at the top of his lungs, if you just let me in, I'll give you all of my life. I'm never going back. Yes. You don't need somebody to coach you. Yeah. Yeah. To hell with all of this coaching, because that is where it is leading. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When it's an authentic work, and something, nobody was in my bedroom coaching me. I was a lost, violent, drunk, miscreant, you know? It was awful. <laughs> and I figured out exactly how to get in the kingdom. I begged with all of my heart, Lord, change me, and he did. Amen. And everybody around me saw it. And those that were skeptical of it are still skeptical of it 24 years later. <laughs> you know why? They're not in the kingdom. They're at a family reunion and they don't belong to the family. Mm. Keep reading. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live. What? Who admits them? The elders. The elders had to admit you into the city? Maybe that's why Peter was given keys. Maybe that's why the other apostles were given keys. Do you mean to tell me that what we agree on on earth, God backs in the heavens? I thought this was a personal matter. Who are you to tell me I'm not saved? I might be the only one that can see your heart right since we know that your heart is most deceptive to you. Mm. The elders had to admit you in the city? I can serve God anywhere. The very fact that you say such an ignorant thing shows that you're not serving God anywhere. I can serve God anywhere. Yes, theoretically it's true. God could choose for you to serve Him any place on the planet. And yet I promise He's chosen somewhere. And the fact that you're saying that shows that you don't know where. Mm. See, you need to be able to state your case publicly. Lord, this is where I'm at. The axe head flew off. There's bodies everywhere. (laughs) I don't really deserve this. And that's why I'm not asking you based on what I deserve. We have mercy on me. And the elders either... By the way, how do you judge malice of forethought? But they did. Apparently, God has always enabled a ruling group that he's invested his authority in with the ability to see beyond the fig leaves that surround your heart. Mm. You're convinced nobody sees you accurately. You know the one person doesn't see you accurately? You. Everybody else probably sees you pretty accurately. You just don't like what the mirror is showing you. Wow. Some of you think way too lowly of yourselves, and others think way too highly of yourselves. And the Word tells us how we should think about ourselves. And He has put shepherds, Levitical cities, in our lives 
to help us know what the word says. There were only 48. You couldn't shop for more. Number one, we state our case publicly. Number two, the leaders must admit you, and there's a reason for that. Who is accountable for your soul other than you? See, I recently got scolded. That's good. I need to be scolded sometimes. I need to be humble. Spit on me. It is a badge of honor. The issue is, somebody said, you may not tell your pastors this. Well, if your pastors are accountable for your life, why would you agree to do that? That was called controlling. No, hear me. You don't have to do anything. But if I'm responsible for shepherding your life, why would you ever agree that you will hide something from the pastorate? Why would you do that? Mm. That's not a good sign, is it? Not at all. Now, of course, the reason we find out is because the person's conscience and the Holy Ghost convicted them. They said, I made this vow and I shouldn't have. But do you know who's upset? The one that asked him to make the vow. Think through this for a minute. The leaders of a church that accept or reject your confession of faith, they're either giving you false assurance or real feedback. One or the other. Which one's more useful to you? Are you sure that you want to go to some totally carnal carnival that is masquerading as a church because they accept you? Are you sure that's what you want? Because what might be best is for you to actually have to stand and state your case, have leaders examine your life. You get something that looks like the book of Revelation. This you have for you, this you have against you. Here's how you remedy it. You'll overcome. We'll help you do it. Amen. Nobody would go to a doctor if he never told them what was wrong with them. But you will go to a church because they do not tell you what's wrong with you. Let's keep going to verse 6. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused, because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice of forethought. Now, I'm not Jesus, and you're not Jesus, yet together we are the body of Christ. Do you know who is supposed to protect this man who runs to the city, states his case publicly, who is admitted by the elders, and now he's in the city? Do you know who protects him? The community at large. Because they will go to war as a community rather than let one person that they've accepted in their city gates perish to the enemy outside. Do you hear how personal that is and how communal that is? Wow. Why is it important that you be careful who you accept into the assembly? Because you have to go to war when the Gibeonites showed up under false pretenses. Wow. (laughs) A lot of times people that are not a part of our assembly are trying to involve me in their war. Hmm. I'm not allowed to get involved in civilian affairs. And neither are you. Your actions need to be directed by the king. Finish verse 6. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly. Here are the terms. The terms are you show up at the city gates and state your case publicly. The leaders must admit you because you're accountable to them. Then third, you must live in the city with the people 
of God as long as Jesus is alive. <laughs> How long is that? Forever. Forever. If you can't stand with him now, you will not stand with him in eternity. But because you stand with him now, you will stand with him in eternity. This is, this is a communal matter. We are the people of God. What we accept better reflect what God accepts. If you're seated here tonight, do you know why that is? Why are you seated in the pastor's home on Monday night at 10 o'clock at night? Why are you here? Because we want you in the assembly of the righteous. We want to lock arms in Hebron fellowship with you. It was the first lot that fell to the first Levitical city, and it was the home of Caleb, the mighty fighting man of faith. And we want to win and win with you. There are commentaries that treat the city of refuge like a prison. And there are people that treat the church like it's a prison. Those commentaries are blind, and so are the Christians that treat the church like a prison. This is either a place of extraordinary liberating freedom for you, or you don't belong. And that's okay. We will prove to you it is not a prison by setting you free. It won't be real freedom. But it'll be free from everything you think that constrains you. What I want to do is I want each one of the community to be so sure that the person on their left and right is supposed to be here. They were admitted by the elders with a public case in the right way. They're here until Jesus perishes and that'll never happen. That every one of us will go to war to protect the life of the other. Amen. See, it's not a personal matter. It's a communal matter. We're supposed to fight for the people of God and the people of God for us. Amen. We have some of us in Africa right now. Some of us will be in Israel by the end of the week. We have 14 different places spread out over five continents that we are committed to every day. And your leaders of this church, we make sure that our commitments are met before we eat. We make sure of that. We have never at any time put ourselves before the body of Christ at large that we're committed to. Never. It's never happened. We encourage you to imitate our way of life because this depends on the inheritance of the tribes being handled in the way that God said to do it. It depends on that. And if you don't, it's okay. You see the sun blotted out by the ravens flying in our provision. Mm. I can assure you that because God's work is going to get done. Amen. But you have the high honor and the privilege of not just sharing with us financially, sharing with us with every aspect of your life. And it is an honor and a privilege. Yes, it yeah. is. And if we're there on moving day, you better believe we'll be there on war day too. Yes. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.